Good morning, gentlemen. It's a little wet out there. Woo! I went to uh, my first uh, SEC football game in about 15 years at the beginning of the season. I went to, to uh, I grew up in East Tennessee going to UT games, so I went to the game, and about an hour before the game, it was just raining, just like it's raining out there right now, just a downpour. And I noticed that all the men around me who were getting drenched from head to toe, they just started cheering, they were so happy, it's kind of like, you know, this is what men do. We're stupid people, stay out in the rain, you know, and watch a, a football game. And I was thinking that when we come to amen. You know, this is perfect amen weather, you know. It's dark, it's dreary, rain's coming down, and real men show up. You know, it's not a place for sissies. By the way, this is a men's Bible study. If you're not sure what gender you are, come talk to me later. We'll figure that out. But this is for men, and we like it that way. We love our women. Uh, we love them a ton, and we got Bible studies for them. This is for men. Every once in a while, we get more graphic, or we talk about men's stuff, and we just like to be alone when we do that. So we're glad to be uh, alone. Uh, some women w- listen to us on a website, and that always makes me a little nervous, but they're welcome to do that because uh, we talk about them sometime too. Uh, this is a layman's Bible study. So if, you, if you're sitting there thinking, man, I don't know anything about the Bible. I'm not even sure if 1 Samuel's in the Old Testament or the New Testament. In fact, I don't know what the Old Testament New Testament is. Uh, this is the place for you. We won't be assuming anything. We're going to start from the ground up. And, of course, if you haven't been studying the Bible for a number of years, you might feel like some things are a little bit beyond you, but you'll catch up. Just hang in there. It's like learning anything. Just hang around. It's kind of like fly fishing. It seems impossible when you start it, and pretty soon you start hauling those fish in. So you just hang in there. This is a Bible study for all different denominations. We like it that way. Uh, It's for people who don't have any church at all. We like it that way. So if you're not a Christian, we really love having you here. For one reason, we've got some things we'd like to talk with you about. The other thing is we'd like to have your perspective in these small groups and around your tables. We like the diversity that we have here with many different viewpoints. I'll probably take out against every one of you at some time or another. Uh, some of you Methodists, you know, we'll talk about you, Church of Christ, Episcopalians, Roman Catholics, especially the Presbyterians, we'll take out on them, because I know them better than the re- I know the rest of you. And we like the diversity of opinion in our small groups, so if you have a mixed group, all the better. We may disagree on some of the minor points of doctrine, but for those of us uh, who go to church in this community, we have so many things that we agree on, and those are primarily the things that we'll be studying from the Word. It's a Bible study. It's not a theological presentation. Although you hear some theology come out uh, every once in a while, it's inevitable. But primarily we're looking at the text. And some of you are teachers. You teach in other places. And every once in a while you'll say to me, you know, can I use this that I got from Amen? Absolutely. That's the reason we're here. So you don't have to ask permission. Just beg, borrow, steal. If it's not nailed down, take it and use it. And if we help any of you in your teaching ministries, that makes us all the happier. So anything that you gain from your small groups or from our lecture time, uh, please feel free to use it. We've mentioned small groups. This year also, we've got a new type of small group that's developing primarily for the younger men whose schedules sometimes don't allow them to be here on Thursday morning. So we are videotaping as well as audio taping. And if you're in one of these groups called Amen Core, uh, you will be able to get the video presentation by Thursday afternoon, Thursday night. And so for members of your small group who can't be here, they can get it video, and then you can have your small group and discuss it. So we've already got some people committed to Amen Core. And let me say, for those of you who are non-Second Presbyterians, which is most of you, by the way, uh, if you'd like to get a study group, a small group, or an Amen Core group made up of people, young people from your own church, let us know that, and we'll be glad to set you up to do that. We think that those Amen core groups probably are best to be within one church community so you can continue to disciple each other along the way. Uh, However you'd like to do it, it'll be available to you. So those are some of the new things this year. Most of the things that we do are old stuff. And that is that we just go through a book of the Bible, in this case, two books of the Bible, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. The reason we're going through this portion of the Bible is, of course, the main human character there is David. And if you know anything about David, uh, you know that here's a guy uh, who was a man after God's own heart. That's what God says about him. But he was a rascal. Uh, This guy, uh, you know, commits adultery. And then, have any of you done this? You commit adultery and then you kill the former husband. Uh, Can I have a show of hands on that one? Uh, uh, If, uh, yeah, just one. Um, 
and he's a psychology professor at University of Memphis. Tells you something. That's where most psychology professors come from, experiences like that. Uh, so uh, we just had one of you, but so the rest of you should be encouraged that uh, David lived a life a little beyond some of the things you've tried out in the past. And by the way, let me say this. If you're not a Christian or you're a new Christian or you don't think you know the Bible very well and you're sitting with some guys who look like they know the Bible really well, let me tell you something. I know these guys. They're knuckleheads, every one of them. And so we're studying David because we can relate. And David has all kinds of problems. We'll get into that as we go through. So it's very encouraging just from the human perspective of looking at this character, David, we will be able to relate to him and we will be able to learn some life lessons from him and from the text about him. But remember that in all the Bible, the, the main character is not David or Abraham or John or Paul. The main character is God. And what we're going to see in First and Second Samuel is God at work. God ruling history. And God ruling history in a particular way. He's ruling history to save his own people. So what we're going to see in First and Second Samuel is a, a portion of God's massive plan to redeem his people. We're going to see how he does that. Now, also in First and Second Samuel, you, you get the uh, primary description of what we call the Davidic, the David covenant. And this Davidic covenant is uh, an aspect of the overall covenant that God makes with his people throughout the Bible. You remember he makes a covenant with Noah after the flood, never to flood the earth again like that, although today raises some questions. And then you have the covenant with Abraham, where God promises uh, to his people that they will be given an inheritance. Uh, you have the covenant with Moses, where God gives us the law and shows us how to walk with him. Now you have the covenant with David. We'll get into this particularly in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God establishes kingship. And through that kingship comes the ultimate king of kings, of all kings, the, David's greater son, the heir of David, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. So it all ends on Christ as the keeper of the covenant and the one who fulfills the covenant. So for all these reasons, First and Second Samuel is loaded with helpful information for us that I think will transform every aspect of our lives. Now, in Amen Bible Study, regardless of the text that we're studying, we're always aware of the various venues where you're living your life. Some of you are married. Some of you have children. That's obviously a primary venue in which you're living your life. We're going to be taking the text and applying it to your dating life if you're single, to your family life if you're married. We're going to be talking about your friendships, especially when we get into the uh, deal with David and Jonathan. What's the nature of a real meaningful friendship? We're going to talk about your workplace. We're going to talk about your civic life and your political life. And we'll talk about your church life. All of these venues come to play in every text of the Scriptures, but especially we're going to see it here. You notice we're also going to be looking at the Psalms from time to time because David was a prolific poet and musician. And much of his poetry, of course, is found in the Psalms. Uh, all, you know, almost half the Psalms are Davidic Psalms. And we'll be looking at how they apply to various moments in David's life. In some instances, at the beginning of the Psalm, we're told, ex told exactly when this Psalm was written and the circumstances. Well, we'll look at that Psalm as we're also studying that text. Some of them we may have to guess a little bit. We know they're Davidic Psalms, but we don't know exactly when they were written. But we'll take some of those up at various times along the way. Now let's look at several background issues. And when you study the Bible, it's very helpful to know what is the period of history in which this was written and to which it was written. What was going on at that time? What's the historical context into which this book is written? I want us to look at that for just a moment. And in uh, the book of Judges, which is two books before uh, 1 Samuel. So turn, for example, let's start by looking uh, on page uh, 467. Uh, and this would be Judges chapter 17. By the way, I'll mention pages that are related to the ESV study Bible. And that's our main text. And we encourage you to get that study Bible. It's an excellent book. Uh, I always tell folks, if you will read through the ESV study Bible over the period of three or four years, you will have a good Bible education because every book is introduced. There are footnotes on 
Most things that might be remote to you, geographical allusions or historical allusions, and it really helps you understand the text. We'll look at Judges 17. You'll notice in verse 6, uh, the author of Judges says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Look at chapter 18 on the next page. Verse 1, In those days there was no king in Israel. Look at chapter 19, verse 1, In those days there was no king in Israel. Turn over a couple of pages, three pages, and look at Judges 21, the very last verse in Judges. 21-25, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There's your context. That was written uh, about a period that immediately precedes what we're going to look at. That describes the history of Israel. You remember Israel had been delivered out of Egypt. They had gone through the wilderness. In the book of Joshua, we're taught taught about how they were taken across the Jordan River to conquer the land. They were to dispossess all the peoples there who were wicked peoples worshiping false gods and to take over the land so that it would become the holy land. They didn't do that perfectly. They did it partially. And it led to many difficulties in their lives. In the period of the judges, what happened was God raised up ad hoc certain judges or warriors or commanders who would gather an army. There was no standing army. They would gather an army, a militia, and they would go out and fight the Philistines primarily as well as other surrounding nations. The Philistines were basically Phoenicians who had developed their culture on the uh, west coast, right on the Mediterranean, the west coast of Palestine. And uh, they were uh, hard-working people. They were, uh, uh, they were uh, not fishermen, what am I trying to say, seagoing uh, people. But they also were a- agricultural people, and they were also warlike people. They were the big problem. And the Israelites were continually facing raids by the, the Philistines. And uh, if you think that the rockets from Gaza into Israel were a difficulty, well, that's kind of what Israel was facing. It was just constant attacks from these Philistines. And God would raise up temporarily these leaders who would serve and fight and gather an army. People like Samson, for example. And Samson would have been the last great judge in Israel. But notice what the author is saying. There was no king over all the tribes. You never knew where this judge was going to come from, what tribe he would come from. And the Israelite tribes themselves sometimes were in chaos. There was no king. There was no one who was setting the standard. And everybody was doing, right, uh, doing what was right in their own eyes. And we know from looking around the world that when there's no king, when you take out Saddam Hussein and you diminish Assad, that you're going to end up with ISIS. Uh, So when there's no king, there's chaos, and everybody does what's right in their own eyes. When you have a mob of 14 to 17 year olds uh, at the the, uh, mall, uh, it doesn't matter where they are, anytime you have 14 to 17 year olds, 75 people, unattended by adults, I'll guarantee you they're going to do something wrong. And that's exactly what happened last week. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes when there's no king, there's no authority. That was the problem in Israel. So they were being troubled by these outsiders and they had no way to defend themselves and they didn't have an internal government that was keeping peace and security and decency in their own land. That's the background for First and Second Samuel. And what we're going to see is God is going to solve this problem in His way. He's going to use some very interesting people and He's going to use some very interesting circumstances And he's even going to use some evil motives of his own people to carry out his own will. He's a powerful God. But his intent is always to rescue and to save. And that's exactly what he's going to do in 1 and 2 Samuel. So the historical context is one of chaos, lack of leadership, and fear and insecurity from the surrounding people. Now the author's purpose is another thing we want to try to grasp when we're reading a book of the Bible. And whether it's a New Testament epistle or a gospel account or the Pentateuch, what is the author trying to teach us? Why did he write this? And some books are easier than others to discern. But here it seems clear to us that the author of 1 and 2 Samuel is showing us 
Who is the author of history? Now, 1 and 2 Samuel in the Hebrew Bible uh, would be called the first book of Kings and the second book of Kings. And 1 and 2 Kings would be called the third book of the Kings and fourth book of the Kings. So in the Hebrew Bible, uh, you have four books of the Kings. And these are the first two. The purpose of all of those books of the Kings is to show that God is sovereign over, over all of history, that no king is sovereign over history. No king is great enough to be in control of everything. Let me just say, no king in this room is big enough and great enough to control even your own history. And we all need to be reminded, and we will be by First and Second Samuel, that God alone is in charge of your history, the history of this nation, and the history of the world. That's the primary focus for First and Second Samuel. Secondly, you'll see here that the author wants to show us that Israel's kings are meant to be God's servants and the servants of God's people. So the reason that we have the Davidic kingdom displayed so graphically, taking many, many chapters of the Bible, is that David becomes the gold standard for all kings. When God is dealing with David, He's showing us how He wants to deal with all of His kings. Now I say this because when you get to first and second kings, when David's successors, beginning with Solomon, begin to rule through the centuries. And then later, of course, you have a division between northern kingdom and southern kingdom. All heirs of David. Here's the way you'll often find them measured by the Bible. They did what was right in the, uh, in the eyes of God, and they walked in the ways of their father David. Now, there are very few kings who did that. But when kings were obeying the Lord and doing what was right, we are told they were walking in the ways of their father David. So God here in First and Second Samuel is presenting to us the prototype of what a king is supposed to be. Now, what is a king supposed to be? A king is supposed to be a vicegerent of God, a representative of God who carries out His will. And what you'll see in First and Second Samuel, that David is measured by the Word of God. That God is the king. And any king who's doing his job rightly, any CEO or manager or teacher in the classroom, anybody who's in charge of people understands there is a God to whom I am accountable. And I am a servant for the people that I'm leading. So everybody, we get Christian leadership from, from this book and other places in the Bible. We see that everybody who has authority, everybody who's been lifted up to be in charge of other people, is put there so that they may serve God and serve those people. And David doesn't do that consistently, and we'll see how God disciplines him every time. So the main character is not David. The main character is the sovereign king, God Himself, who rules all of, all of history and is saving His people. Now just to give you a brief chronology, to give you an idea of what time in history are we talking about, uh, Saul was publicly anointed king in 1050 B.C. So we're talking about a millennium before Christ. And Samuel then was born before Saul was anointed. So Samuel may have been born 40 years before that. And then after Saul's reign, you have David's reign beginning in 1010. And then David's son Solomon begins his reign in 970. That's the general period about which we're speaking. Now you'll remember that the Israelites were taken out of Egypt. There are debates on what date it was. Was it 1425 or 1275? We're not quite sure. But 250 to 400 years prior, the Israelites come out of Egypt and go into the Promised Land. And then you know where this leads. That event, don't worry about a hurricane. When you're teaching the Bible, everybody goes straight to heaven when, when the hurricane comes, so I wouldn't <laughs> worry about it. Um, so uh, to, to, to talk for a moment about where this leads... Here we are in the 11th century B.C. And by the 8th century, the northern kingdom is taken into exile, 722 B.C. by the Assyrians. By the 6th century, 586 B.C., the southern kingdom is taken into exile in Babylon. So that kind of gives you an idea of where we are. Now let's look at the text, uh, beginning with 1 Samuel chapter 1. We're on page 491. And I think what we'll do is just read through We've got a chapter and a half, and by the way, with all the chapters we're covering, of course we're going to have to cover about two chapters at a shot. So 
we'll be covering the main themes. We'll try not to get lost too much in the weeds. Let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 1. There was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf. Those are all names of my relatives, uh, named all after that. And Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. Now Shiloh is north of Jerusalem. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And the tabernacle was set up in Shiloh until the temple was built. We know that Solomon built the temple. So the temple's not going to be built now for another 75, 80 years. So meanwhile, they're worshiping in this temporary site known as Shiloh. Back to the text. Where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her. Imagine that. Because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. Now let me just pause here just a moment. Uh, Another historical reality for Israel is the priesthood is in bad shape. Eli was generally a good man. But his sons, who were the heirs to the priesthood, were taking the more beautiful women and having little affairs with them back in the back behind the tabernacle and stealing some of the food that came in for the sacrifices. I mean, it was a corrupt priesthood. So just so that you understand, uh, Israel was really in a mess at this point. Uh, where, Where were we? Where did I leave off? 14, And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. And the God of Israel, grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. You see, in the corrupt priesthood, he couldn't even recognize someone who was really praying. He thought she had to be drunk. That's how bad things were in Israel. Verse 19, They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. That means they had sex. And the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. 
Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them He has set the world. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the power of His anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Okay, I want us to notice in chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, a very important lesson from this text, and that is that God ordains our troubles. God ordains our troubles. Would you please notice with me in verses 5 and 6, the author here says clearly, the Lord had closed her womb. Again in verse 6, the Lord had closed her womb. Gentlemen, when you are reading biblical history, you should expect two things. You should expect, number one, that you're getting the facts and they're accurate. And the Bible claims to be an accurate conveyance of everything about which it teaches. So when we go to First and Second Samuel, we have confidence. These historical things actually happen. That's the first thing you get, is accurate, factual history. The second thing you get in First and Second Samuel, and actually anywhere in the Bible, is that you get interpretation of the facts. What do these facts mean? Now, if I were a secular historian, I would simply say, there was a woman, Hannah, who was the first wife of a man named Elkanah, and she was barren. And that would be the facts of history. But when you read the Bible, it does not intend to be from a secular point of view. Why? Because the authors of the Bible don't believe that the ultimate motive of history is the will of man. The authors of the Bible believe, as I do, that the ultimate mover of history is the creator of history himself, the living God. So what biblical history is providing for you is a biased view of history. And the bias is, there is a God, He created everything, and He is continually ruling everything and bringing it to conclusion. Now you say, well, why would I want to read a biased history? Well, let me tell you something. If you don't want to read a biased history, you're not going to read history. Everybody has a bias. And it is the secular historian who says, oh, we're just factual and we're objective. You're not objective. You have your biases, that there is not a God, and that that if there were one, He doesn't control history, and that history is a bunch of collected accidents and events with men clashing with each other. That's your view of history. Why don't you admit it in the forward to your history text? In the Bible, the forward says this, God created the heavens and the earth, and He rules over them. So the Bible never intends to be just conveying a, a chronology or certain events that happen in history. It's also giving you interpretation. And here's the interpretation of Hannah's barrenness. God is the one who closed up her womb. And let me tell you what else the Bible says. God is in charge of everything in your life. Now this is difficult on the face of it when you think about some of the difficult things in your life. You think, think, did God do that? Well, we're going to see in a minute how gracious He is even in bringing to you certain things that are unpleasant or even tragic. And here, of course... Do you think that Hannah was thinking that God was doing her some big favor by closing up her womb? What do you think her attitude was? Well, you see it. She wept bitterly. But what did God do with her? He 
uh, He will eventually lead her to come to Him. And He will lead her to give us the man we need, Samuel, who's the last of the judges and a great prophet and the one who anoints the king for us. And this is what God is up to. And He does it through ordaining even the difficult things in our life. Now look at verses 1 through 4 and you'll see that God picks ordinary worshipers. When God's doing His work, it's ordinary people. It's just like you and just like me. When you look at the great Elijah, what does James say about Elijah in James chapter 5? Elijah is a man who prayed and fire came down from heaven. And James says this, Elijah was a man just like us. Why is he saying that? God picks ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And those people that you see that look like these huge heroes that belong in the pantheon of saints, they're ordinary people like people sitting around these tables today. And those are the people God picks. And those are the people who sometimes go through suffering at God's appointment in order to bring about God's purposes. And we all have to realize that's what we're here for, is to be used by God. Now notice that he picks ordinary worshipers. Here's a guy, he seems to be fairly well-to-do. He has a legacy. You see his lineage there in verse 1. He knows who he is. He's got a recognized family. He has two wives, so he couldn't be real poor, right? I mean, if you got one wife, you're struggling to keep her happy, right? This man's got two wives. Think about that. Uh, He's got to keep two women happy. I'm so glad the Bible teaches us to have one wife. I can't imagine trying to keep two wives happy. And Elkanah wasn't doing such a great job of it as you see in the text here. So he's got two wives, and he seems to be a religious man. So he's a worshiper. And God just takes normal people like you and me who just come to worship God, come to study His Bible. He's going to use you. Now look secondly in verses 5-7, through and you see that sometimes God's afflictions are... Heavy. And this one was heavy for Hannah. Here's why. If you were a woman in the first millennium B.C. or in the times of Jesus, and you were barren, it was very difficult. Because why did the man choose you in the first place? Because he had to have some farmhands. And the people who, in those days, when you had children, that was your workforce. And it actually was to your economic advantage to have children. Can you imagine such a day? Now it costs you hundreds of thousands of dollars every time one of those kids plops down uh, in the hospital and it's yours. It's going to cost you, I mean, if you have four or five children, you're talking about over a million dollars it's going to cost you to rear these children typically in America. So children cost, and that's the reason the size of families have gone down. But in an agrarian economy, children actually make money for you. So if your wife is not giving you children, you're normally not very happy with her. You'll notice this in royal families, that if you get a wife and she can't bear an heir, the king's going to find some way, like King Henry VIII, he had a bunch of them, didn't he? He just kept going through the line until he got the woman that was giving him the issue that he wanted. And so it was very tragic in in this period when you were childless. But the most difficult thing about it was that it was felt by many people that it was God's judgment on you that He closed your womb. So that somehow you were out of favor with the deity when your womb was closed. It was very, very difficult for her. But now notice, uh, see, that knucklehead husbands don't get it. Now, here's why. Look at this amazing verse 8 with Elkanah. Elkanah comes to her. Here's a woman who obviously, more than anything in life, she wanted to have a kid. Any of you all married to a woman like that? I mean, I'm married to a woman who was made to be a mother uh, and, and now a grandmother. And uh, there are a lot of women in our churches who, who really have a sense that their purpose in life is to mother little children. That's the way Hannah seemed to have felt. And Elkanah, who appears to be a good guy, he comes to her and says, Honey, you know, you've got the, 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 the full range of my estate. You know that you're my favorite wife between the two of you. Uh, you know that I think you're very attractive. And of course, he, you know, he loves her and he goes to bed with her and has sex all the time. They have no children. You know, they don't need any, any uh, you know, preventative measures. Uh, he's just, it's great for him. You know, she's beautiful. And he's just saying, come on, honey, we've got a great life. And he says, aren't I worth more than 10 sons to you? I mean, what a DA, you know, just a total <laughs> knucklehead. Yeah, Look, guys, can I tell you something? You're not, you're not worth one son, uh, much less ten sons. Uh, when, when a wife uh, has her child, 
you know, and a lot of the tension in marriage comes because you come home and she's up with the children and doing this, that, and the other and all obsessed with them. And you, poor little you, you don't get her attention. Well, guess what? Uh, that's what uh, mothers do. They nurture their children. Hannah desperately wanted a child and her husband doesn't get it at all. So if your wife wants to get pregnant and she can't, would you please take a page out of the Bible here and realize that her suffering is a lot deeper than you can realize, probably. You might need a counselor to help you understand how deeply this hurts her. But now notice in verses 9 through 16, secondly here, our troubles lead us to the Lord. If you have a relationship with Christ... Your troubles are eventually going to lead you to the Lord, and that's the purpose of them. Paul says about his own troubles, and he had many, many troubles, that his afflictions were achieving something for him. What was it achieving? An eternal weight of glory. So these are not mindless, purposeless sufferings. No, if you give your life to Christ, you can be assured that everything you suffer has a purpose in His kingdom, it has a purpose in your personal life, and it has a purpose for His glory. And you can take satisfaction in knowing that that's true with every aspect of your life. Now, does it mean that, that your troubles are not your fault? No, a lot of times your troubles are your fault. I'm even talking about those troubles. Even troubles that were perpetrated by David himself ended up being for the good of the kingdom, as we shall see. But here our troubles, we are shown, lead us to the Lord. First of all, notice in verse 9 and 10, with troubles we pray. And that's exactly, exactly what Hannah does. She goes and prays to God in Shiloh at the tabernacle. She's seeking the Lord. And guys, it's, it's just amazing. It, when you have your little troubles, here's the way we normally think. If, if you're anything like me, if I'm projecting on you, I'm sorry. But I think this is the way we think. When we have little troubles... You know, they irritate us, and we just fix them. When we have bigger troubles, we'll slow down and think about this. What's the solution to this thing? We might get a, uh, you know, if it's a big enough problem, we might get a few people to come in and give us their opinions on it and try to have a little council discussion on this. This is a big problem. I need a little bit more wisdom. But now when you have a big problem, like you've got incurable cancer, no consultation with anybody's going to help you. There is nothing that you can do about it and you're left with one resort, your Creator, the one who can redeem, the one who can work miracles, and finally, God gets a prayer out of you. It's amazing how far we can go along the way with our problems and never consult the Lord, never ask for His favor, never ask for His counsel, never seek Him in His Word until we are bereft, we have nowhere to turn. That's where Hannah was. Hannah was a fine woman. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But she really didn't turn to the Lord until she was barren and she knew there was no answer but the Lord Himself. Now, secondly, notice that we commit. So now she goes to the tabernacle and she works a little deal with the Lord. And it's amazing. Uh, you know, how many of us came to Christ in circumstances that were difficult? And I know several of you did. You had kind of those, uh, uh, you know, foxhole conversions. Uh, in, whether it was in business or in a relationship or maybe in warfare. And you know that you're in trouble. And you seek the Lord and you cut a little deal with Him. And I know some of you have done that. Lord, if you'll see me through this one, <laughs> you know, I will serve you forever. Well, you say, that's a pretty cheap way to come to the Lord. You know, trying to manipulate God. Well, you know what? God will even take your manipulations and your cheap, cheap ways of dealing with Him and He'll lead you to Himself and get commitment out of you and use you. That's exactly what He's doing with Hannah. She tries to work a deal with him, and God works a deal with her. And he gets both Hannah and her son Samuel, as we shall see. So she comes in her affliction, and she says to the Lord that I will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. So there's such a thing called the Nazarite vow, where a man is reared as a Nazarite, not a Nazarene, Nazarite. And that means he never drinks strong drink. He doesn't cut his hair uh, as a devotion to the Lord like Samuel, Samson. And you remember when Samson cut his hair, he was in trouble and he got defeated. But as long as his hair was not cut because he was a Nazarite and he made a, his mama made a vow to the Lord. 
And in that situation, it was the same thing. His mama was barren until God gave Samson. Same thing here with Samuel. God often works in miraculous ways, working out of the weakness of humanity to bring about His great purposes. And notice thirdly, that she breaks social customs. And our zeal does often break social customs. You'll see this with her, that she's sitting there praying in such a way that Eli the priest, you know, uh, Eli the, the one who above all should know when someone's expressing religious affections. Eli's fooled. He thinks she's got to be drunk. She is so expressive, so deeply moved, that she's breaking all the social conventions of worship. She's not worshiping like a Presbyterian, that's all I can tell you. She is breaking those social conventions. She's, as David will do in his worship life, we'll see this later, David does some things that are non, very non-Episcopalian, I'm telling you. And she does things that are out of accord with the customs. Why? She's tuned in to the Lord. When you're following the Lord, you're seeking Him, you want His will in your life, you'll find that you won't be looking just like everybody else, even everybody else in church. Now when we come to verses 17 through 20, notice that we've learned this. The Lord does answer our prayers. It's amazing. The Lord answers our prayers. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. He says, everyone who asks will give an answer to. Everyone who seeks will find. Everyone who knocks on the door, the door will be opened to him. And Jesus goes on to say, if you who are wicked fathers know how to give good gifts to your son, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? He answers prayer. You say, well, I've asked Him for something. I didn't get it. Look, if you're in Christ, every single prayer is heard and will be answered in the way that's good for you, good for the glory of God, and good for the kingdom that He's establishing. And it will either be answered now in your life where you can actually see the answer yourself here in this life or it will be answered in the next life. But it will be answered. He hears the prayers of His children, all of them. So here we have an instance when the prayer is answered in this life, immediately a promise is given. This is unusual. But it's given to Hannah and she is told that she can go in peace because the God of Israel will grant your petition that you have made to Him. So the promise believed brings peace. Look what she does. She went her way, verse 18 and 8, and her face was no longer sad. Now notice, she's still barren. She's not pregnant. Why is she no longer sad? She believes the promises of God. Gentlemen, this is what faith does for you. It lifts up your countenance in the midst of very difficult, distressing circumstances because you can see the future. You can't see all of it. You're not God. But when God reveals to you a promise of something He's going to do in the future, you see it. I've been told in the Bible without any doubt that Jesus Christ is coming back and He's going to save His people and He's going to give me a resurrected body. I know that. I can see that in the future. Therefore, no matter what I face, my countenance is ultimately lifted up and I'm at peace because God has revealed to me something about the future. That's exactly what He's done with Hannah. Secondly, the promise believed inspires obedience. She goes home and she worships the Lord. And she, she goes home and has sex with her husband, knowing that at some point God is going to make her pregnant. And thirdly, verses 19 through 20, the promise fulfilled must be remembered. Why do I say that? Because she calls her son Samuel because she says, I have asked for him from the Lord. So she names him intentionally. The name of God has named him. And God has heard their prayers. So she names him and remembers that he is an answer to prayer. Boy, he was a special child, wasn't he? Now let's look, fourthly and lastly, at how his answers call for our devotion. And we'll move rather quickly here. We only have about seven or eight minutes. His answers call for our devotion. So here God has answered her prayer. She's remembered it by naming her son Samuel. And now she's going to respond and Elkanah is going to respond, first of all, with faithfulness. And you see this in verses 21 through 28. We notice, first of all, they express their faithfulness because Elkanah goes to Shiloh without her and pays his vow. We don't know exactly what that vow was. Hannah had her vow, but apparently Elkanah had his vow. Well, guess what? If you... If you 
have professed faith in Jesus Christ and joined His church, you've taken a vow, more than likely. If you're a Presbyterian, I know you've taken a vow. You've taken five of them when you joined our church. If you got married, you took a vow to be a loving and faithful husband. If you baptize your children, if you're in a, a, a denomination that does that, you took a vow as a parent that you'd rear your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. If you're an officer in the church, a pastor, a deacon, an elder, you took a vow. And you ought to look at those vows on a regular basis. I've often said to men, you know what, if you'll just look at your vows that you've ever taken, and just refresh your mind of what those vows are, just live your life according to those vows, you'll be in really good shape. But think about the meaning of taking a vow before the Lord. You're swearing before God and other witnesses that you're going to do something. Let's pay our vows. It's a matter of our integrity. And so Elkanah goes, and whatever his vow was, he pays it to the Lord with sacrifice. Secondly, we joyfully fulfill our assigned roles. Now Hannah is a mother. And she says, I'm going to give Samuel up to the Lord, but first I'm going to wean him. And in those days, that would be two or three years that the child would be breastfed until he could digest hard food. So she keeps him for two or three years, worshiping the Lord, training Samuel. And I'm telling you what now, there's a whole lot you can do in those two or three years. And we're going to see the results of her mothering when we see Samuel's life. Because Samuel is immediately, as a young child, thrown into an environment that is wicked. And we're going to see whether Samuel sustains that or not. And it's amazing what a parent can do with a child in the first three years. It's amazing to me how Samuel was prepared for what he had to face. We joyfully fulfill our assigned duties. Thirdly, we hand our children over to him. And that's what she does. She goes back to Shiloh and she hands her child over to the Lord, and she says in verse 28, Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. Now she could put it the other way, God has lent him to us. But she hands him over to the Lord. Now if you want to know where the idea of dedication of children comes from in your worship service, this is it. If you're a Baptist, for example, you probably have dedications of children in your service. This is it. This is the dedication. You give your child over to the Lord. Now notice what she's giving him over to do. When you dedicate your child, what are you dedicating him or her to do? Hannah gives Samuel over to be a priest in the house of God. So when you're rearing children as a believer, you are giving them over to the Lord and you are simply fulfilling the role the Lord has given you in rearing this human being to be a priest or a priestess in the house of God. To be a worshiper. To know the Word of God. To be able to communicate to other people. That's the purpose of Christian parenting. You're, you're rearing God's children, God's priests. So, for example, you'll notice in the Presbyterian parental vows, and some of, some of us here have child baptisms and some of us don't, but I think even if you weren't, uh, even if you don't baptize children, you could look at these vows and say, these are good things to say. That you acknowledge your child's need. That your child's a sinner. They need the blood of Christ and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit. You're acknowledging that there are covenant promises on His behalf. That if He's reared in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, that if you train up a child in the way he shall go, when he is old, he will not depart from it, says Solomon. So we're going to trust in God's rearing of the children in this Christian home. And then thirdly, you're unreservedly dedicating your child to God. And you're making promises in Christian parenting that you're going to use all the means that God gives you. Praying with and for this child. Teaching them the Scriptures. You're their number one teacher. For good or ill. You can send them to all the schools and Sunday schools and youth groups you want. But the number one teacher in their life is their parents. And they understand from you whether the Bible is important or it's not important. They understand from you whether you need to pray or you don't need to pray. They understand from you whether you abuse other people or you don't abuse other people. They understand from you whether they should be patient or not be patient. You are the key teacher. And so what you're promising as a Christian parent is that you will seek to set a godly example before them. And you're also pledging that you will rear them in the community of faith. You'll use all the means of God's appointment including His church. Now that's what a Christian parent does. So Hannah is coming, dedicating Samuel over to the Lord to be used of the Lord. Now, lastly, on the last page, notice she also gives thanksgiving. Now let's take two minutes just to wrap this up. And here we have this 
beautiful poem that is the prototype for Mary's Magnificat in Luke chapter 1. Mary's Magnificat is very similar to this. In fact, I'm, it's obvious. Mary knew Hannah's prayer very well. She had memorized it. And so when she worships the Lord, it comes out in very Hannah-like language. Here's what Hannah does. Number one, she gives thanks for God's greatness. When God is great, I can laugh at Penina making fun of me. Not because I hate Penina, but because I know the Lord is going to answer my prayer. And I'm confident. And therefore I can laugh at all of the opposition to me. Secondly, I thank God for God's justice. You may say, well, I don't want God to destroy other people. Well, how do you feel when someone beheads a friend of yours? How do you feel when someone's persecuting you because you're a believer? Of course, you want justice. And here is what Hannah is saying. God is bringing justice. And that's the reason I have this son. And we'll see that's exactly true. Thirdly, she thanks God for God's sovereignty. Notice verse 6, the Lord kills. The Lord brings to life. As Job said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's in charge of death and He's in charge of life. He's the sovereign Lord. And she says, praise Him for His sovereignty. And lastly in her prayer, she thanks God for His faithfulness. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones. And then you see in verse 10, she mentions for the first time in the Bible the word His anointed. And that word anointed means Messiah. Mashiach means to anoint. Messiah. And she says that here He's going to exalt the power of His anointed. She is aware that God's work in her simple little ordinary life is to advance the kingdom of His Messiah, His anointed one. This is an amazing thing that she has this insight. Then lastly, you'll notice that we uh, not only thank the Lord and we not only uh, are faithful to the Lord, but we trust the Lord. Now they can go home. And the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now we go about our lives. But our lives have been radically transformed because we realize that the Lord is the Lord of history. And He's working out His plan in our lives. And He's going to use us to advance the kingdom. Now we're going to see how that is true with Samuel how it's true with David, and how it's true with you as we study this book together. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the examples that set before us, but especially thank You for Your sovereign power in all of history and for Your gracious intention toward us that even in moments of affliction and disappointment, even in times when we feel like we're in despair, we can know that You are working Your purposes out and Your purposes are gracious toward us. We pray that we may draw near to you and pray today and to seek your face and entrust our lives fully into your hands. For we make our prayer in the name of His anointed, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.